0: Well, good morning. good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks once again to Brother Grant and Diana for guiding us in worship. Annalise told me last night that she was very much looking forward to the gathering of the condiments this morning. I think she meant congregants, but perhaps we'll check the fridge before we leave. Theologian A.W. Tozer some of you know him, wrote that the church that cannot worship must be entertained. That entertainment value is seen in supposedly winning the lost. But we know that what you win the lost with, you must keep them with. If you won them with flash and bang, it is with that you must keep them. If you won them intellectually, they're yours until a better argument comes along. No, we need a new heart, don't we? We need to be changed. We need to be altered. We need to be made new because man's problem does not lie in what he does. It lies in what he is. Scripture shows us that the lost are one when the gospel is preached, when the word is opened and expounded upon, because Jesus has put the full weight and effect of his saving power into the message of the gospel. All the eggs are in one basket. He does no saving, zero, none outside of this gospel. It's not a very popular message. This radical exclusivity claimed by Christ in John 14:6, for example, it sets the teeth of the world on edge. And in fact, it is, it is the exclusivity of Christ alone that causes all the consternation and trouble that's heading our way, even as we speak. See, if you would personally choose Jesus, but declare that there are many ways to God, the world would embrace you. If you would personally choose Jesus, that's fine, but bow to state powers that presume to infringe on the lordship of Christ over his church, the world would accept you. When you declare that Christ stands alone, you must be canceled. When you declare that Christ is the head of the church, not the government, You must be silenced. As an update up in Canada, our dear brother, Pastor Coates, who we have been praying for as a church, is not just in jail this morning. He is in a maximum security jail right now as we speak, because he told Caesar, no, you have no authority here. Christ is head of the church. We will gather and we will worship and we will sing and we will minister as God's word commands us to do. I checked the Greek closely in the book of Hebrews, and it did not say to not forsake the assembling of the brethren unless there's a virus going around. No. All humanity is lost outside of this gospel. The moment the gospel stops, all hope stops. Why? Because Jesus has put the full efficacy, the full power into this gospel. It's the plan of the ages all hope, all comfort to a dark world. And what is his chosen vessel to accomplish and to proclaim that gospel? It's preaching. It's preaching. It's the preached word. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans ten fourteen. There is great motivation to stop this message That's not conspiracy. Scripture tells us this and history records this. The attack comes from many places and in many ways under the banner of the greater good or public health or anti-discrimination. You will never hear we are coming after you because you are a Christian. You'll never hear that. Satan learned long ago to not fight structural Christianity or religion. You join it. You co-opt it, you infiltrate it, you weaken it from within. You lull it to sleep. So when Caesar asserts itself as Lord over the church, we have a very willing and submissive audience. Yet amidst all this, remember, the serpent of old, the devil, is on a leash. He's on a leash, but we must be awake. It is time for the church to awake. Cultural Christianity is gasping its last breath. In the United States, those who remain must be earnest, earnest in prayer, earnest in learning, earnest in serving, earnest in being in the house of the Lord in fellowship. Lazy Christianity is not a stripe or a breed that will survive the coming years. Market Patched on Christianity will not survive the coming years. Only that which is pure and true will remain. If you need to repent, then repent. If you need to go out into that field and slay that goat to make new wineskin to receive this gospel, then go and do that without hesitation. Let that stir your hearts this morning, saints. If you are saved, rejoice, rejoice. You possess the most consequential, the most potent message in all of human history. And the gates of hell desire mightily to quench it. But it will not prevail. It will not prevail. Amen. Amen. Amen, And so be it. Well, last week, we concluded our two part series, didn't we saving the Sabbath, saving the Sabbath. And I pray it was a blessing for you. I pray it was pray it was instrumental in cleaning out our inner Pharisee, our inner legalism that loves to grow in our hearts. I know it did for me. In this morning's announcements, we talked about spring cleaning, and this was spring cleaning for legalism. We had to shake out the drapes. We had to wipe off the mantles, get it out of there, because we saw what legalism does to the mind, how it calluses the heart, how it drains the life, how it brings death, death of joy, death of spirit, and ultimately separation from Christ resulting in everlasting death. Legalism is a cheap substitute for an obedience that is fueled by love. Legalism is a counterfeit. For every attribute that we are to walk in as Christians, Satan has a counterfeit for it. I remember when we lived in Hong Kong, we used to go to the markets to buy all sorts of things, usually every week. And they would sell knockoff Rolexes and Prada bags. They looked remarkably like the real thing. They're a counterfeit. I remember I had a colleague of mine, he took his Rolex in one day to be worked on and was shocked when the jeweler told him it was a fake. He had no idea. It took the discerning eye of the jeweler and he knew it immediately, except no substitutes. Our obedience is fueled by love, not legalism, not out of compulsion or raw obligation. God gave us the Sabbath as a gift. It is a time to refresh and worship him, a time to gather with each other and recharge. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus is indeed Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord over it all. Well, as we move forward in chapter three this morning, Mark is going to shift gears on us quite abruptly, which is, of course, his style over the next 12 verses. We will cover over the next two weeks or so will be given what many call a full review of Jesus' ministry to this point. Everything we've seen Jesus do thus far in Mark will be done again and recorded in very rapid fashion. So with that, beginning with our text, Mark 3, 7-12. through 12. That's Mark 3, verses 7-12. through 12. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, And beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Let's pray. Lord, the words that we have just read are true. Help us to read this scene. Help us to understand the meaning of the text. Even as you watch over your word to perform it, help us to apply this to our lives that we might be discerning guardians of what is real and what is true. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, brother to Charles Wesley, who wrote one of the hymns that we sang this morning, kept a journal detailing many of his pursuits and activities in ministry. In 1737, he had five sequential entries that were quite amusing. He writes Sunday A.M., May 7th, preached in St. Lawrence's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday, P.M., same day, May 7th, preached at St. Catherine Cree's Church. Deacon said, quote, get out and stay out. Sunday, A.M., May 14th, preached at St. Anne's. Can't go back there either. Sunday afternoon, May 21st, preached at St. John's, kicked out again. Sunday evening, same day, May 21st, preached at St. Bennett's. Deacons called special meeting and said, I couldn't return. Later, he preached on the street corner and was chased off the street corner. He preached in a field and someone let a bull loose on him. Well, if you recall, like John Wesley, Jesus has also just come off of five escalating series of confrontations with the Pharisees. And our finale came last week where we left the Pharisees plotting with the Herodians to kill Jesus. They wanted to release the bull on him. Jesus, like John Wesley, decided to withdraw from the confrontations and retreat for a while back to the fields, if you will. Or in this case, the Sea of Galilee the seashore. This is where we find ourselves in our first scene. So beginning with verse 7 and 8, Mark 3, verses 7 and 8, I'll read them as one. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Well, as we mentioned, the first thing we observe here is Jesus withdrawing. He's withdrawing from the building heat of the last five confrontations. When we reach the boiling point of the Pharisees being so angry that recall the usage that they used here really intimated that they would have killed Jesus right then and there if they could have. Jesus knew it was time to leave. But why leave? Jesus was in control. He was not scared of them by any stretch. So why leave? Why not just keep throwing gasoline on the fire? Very simple. It was not yet time. It wasn't time. Not only did Jesus come to earth in the fullness of time, but he would be arrested and he would be crucified right on time as well. Jesus knew the plotting of the Pharisees and he knew it was time to scoot. Well, it's interesting where we see Jesus go. Our text here says that Jesus withdrew to the sea. Well, this is, of course, the Sea of Galilee, but a few things we need to ferret through here. This is the only time we see Mark use this word withdraw. It's unique, one usage. All of our previous scenes took place where? In Capernaum. Capernaum is essentially on the sea. So to just walk down to the shoreline from the temple does not really fit the spirit of withdrawing from the area that Mark is showing us here. Most theologians speculate that Jesus likely walked around to the northeast side of the sea. This would remove himself from all the oversight and all the politicking and the immediate blow off from the previous events. So this withdrawing is likely well away from Capernaum at this point. And who do we see with Jesus? Verse seven, his disciples. Interesting. Follow the line with me here. Who's been called so far? We have Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, and Matthew. Seven. Now, this does not mean that it was seven people who were following Jesus up to the north here at this point. Many have identified themselves as Jesus' disciples throughout his ministry. Many. We know at one point he had over 70 disciples that he told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. That thinned the crowd pretty quickly. That's what happens when you tell a Jew he needs to drink blood. It's going to thin the crowd. But I don't want you to visualize only seven men following Jesus here. In fact, we'll see in one minute it was far, far more. While only 12 would end up becoming the apostles, many would come and go as disciples. We need to catch that. They're curious learners who wanted a teacher. Yet just like John Wesley, who left the churches of confrontation only to have a bull set loose on him, as we'll see Jesus leaving the sources of confrontation in Capernaum, it's going to pull him out of the frying pan and put him right into the fire. Verse 7 continues, and a great multitude from Galilee followed. We need to stop there for a moment. Why does Mark describe How does Mark describe the multitude here? Great. Not to pull you down there yet, but look quickly down at the end of verse 8. How does he describe the crowd again? Great. That's a double usage. The author is trying to tell us something here. We are talking crowds that probably numbered in the high tens of thousands. Double usage of the word great. This is biblical language for thousands and thousands. See this scene. Mark says first, a great multitude from Galilee followed. This is not terribly surprising. This is where Jesus has been ministering up to this point. This is where he's been speaking and healing. But what follows is a puzzler at first. It's a puzzler. Mark proceeds here in verse 8 to give us a very eclectic list of regions. If we're to glance over them, it may seem a bit random. Verse 8, Mark 3, verse 8. They were coming from Galilee, also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Well, what is with this odd bunch of cities and regions? Let's look at them, and the reason is going to come into amazing focus. Galilee... Well, this is a region, remember, it's made up of what? Over 200 small towns and villages. They were mostly Jews, but were, they're what we're going to call redneck Jews, right? Remember, they weren't those fancy pants Jews from down in Jerusalem. They were considered unlearned Jews that the proper sophisticated ones in Jerusalem, they looked down upon with suspicion. They were sub-religious. Why live way up north, away from the temple when you could live here in God's city? What's wrong with you? We have Judea. To include Jerusalem, more fancy pants Jewish communities. 120 miles to the south, we have Idumia. And what we call, we'll call this the Transjordan area. These were mixed. These were mixed areas of Jewish and Gentile. This area was a melting pot. Jews and Gentiles together. If we go back to the north, we hit Tyre and Sidon. These were solid Gentiles areas. So follow the pattern. What is Mark saying? The unsophisticated Jews are coming. The sophisticated Jews are coming. The mixes and the half breeds are coming and the full on Gentiles are coming. Mark is saying every nation, tribe and tongue is coming. And not just a few, not just a few, by the tens of thousands, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Let's just take Jerusalem, for example. Jerusalem, 80 miles to the south. Well, what of the cripples, for example, there? We know there were many. As word came filtering back about this Jesus fellow, the miracles, the stories, if you were lucky, you had a bed with four poles. If you were lucky, you had four friends or family members that were willing to take you. Take the four strongest men in here, Put another man on a cot and carry him for an entire mile. Now go 80. 80 miles. We need to understand this. We need to understand the desperation of these people to come. To travel with someone sick or lame was immeasurably difficult in this day. But what wouldn't we do? What wouldn't we do? Many would not have four people. Many would not have four people that could leave their work to take their friend or their family to Galilee, to each grab a corner of the bed. So you'll need to put that man on your back in a fireman's carry. Go one mile. Now go 80. They would stop at nothing to get their friends and their loved ones to Jesus. But the tragedy here lies in the heart of most of those coming, doesn't it? While we don't know the heart of everyone, certainly Mark does tell us why they were coming. He tells us why Mark will tell us here later in verse 10 that they were pressed around him, that they pressed around him in order to touch him. Were they coming for the words of life or were they coming to be healed of their infirmity? Did they really want the message or to expel a malady? Did they want the root or did they just want the fruit? Is this tragedy of people wonderful Is this throng of people rather wonderful or is it a tragedy? It's both. If you're coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons, you will be disappointed. You will be disillusioned and your end will be worse than your first. If we merely love the gift and not the gift giver, we've missed the heart of Christ. We have missed his desire. Tens of thousands are coming now to Jesus, but most will not want him. They do not desire to possess him. But he is the gift. Jesus is the gift. They merely desire to be healed in their body. I remember back when I was flying, I would try and bring home a small treat or a gift for each of the kids when I would come home. But after a while, I had to stop doing that so much. See, I would come home from a long trip and the kids would come running into my arms, not saying, Daddy, I loved you and I missed you, but Daddy, what'd you bring me? I was teaching them to love the gift over the gift giver. The true gift was not the treat. It was possessing dad that was the real treasure. This misguided priority with our physical body, with desiring to be healed over all else, it's not changed in 2,000 years. The lowest paid vocation in our nation is a pastor. The highest is a doctor. What do we value as a society? Follow the money. Is it wrong to desire to be healed? Absolutely not. In fact, we're commanded to pray for healing in Scripture. But our gift, our prize is not that. Our gift is Christ. That we might behold and possess him. And that he might possess us as his children. As the song goes, I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. That is the prize. He is the prize. Our bodies will fade. And our eyesight might dim. But he is our prize. Whatever the physical ailment might be, as hard as it is, as debilitating and demoralizing as it can be, it is so very temporary. And for the believer, it has great purpose. Scripture tells us that it's actually preparing you for glory. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul writes to the Corinthians. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul tells the church in Rome, look up, Paul is saying, look up, As hard as the ailment or the situation may be, stop the navel gazing. Our natural flesh desires to turn in on ourselves, doesn't it? Always inward, inward. But our math is wrong. It's not ten looks at ourselves and one look to Jesus. It is one look at ourselves and ten looks to Jesus. If you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by an ailment or a situation, In all soberness and love, let's check our math. Let's check our math. Ten looks to Jesus. Ten. Watch the strength of your heart and spirit return. Watch peace and joy return. So is it wonderful that tens of thousands are coming to Jesus? Yes, it is. It's wonderful and it's tragic. It's wonderful and it's tragic. They will press into him. They will press into him with all their might. They will even get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. They will have touched the king of kings and they will remain unconverted in their hearts. That's difficult to not camp there I can tell you, but we'll continue this incredible scene. Moving to verse nine, moving to verse nine. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. Well, what do you know? Social distancing in the Bible. And here I thought I couldn't find this practice anywhere in scripture amongst healthy people. I stand corrected. Here it is. This was actually a common technique for Jesus. If any have visited the Sea of Galilee, you can see these vast fields that connect right to the shoreline. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. When we see the word boat attached to the Sea of Galilee, we tend to visualize and think about the disciples' fishing boat, don't we? When we just saw it in our head, you probably visualized a fishing style boat. That style of boat is called a ployon in the Greek, but here we see arion, meaning a small rowboat, small rowboat, and that would make sense. Why would the disciples' fishing vessel, which is headquartered in Capernaum, be over here? It wouldn't be, right? They didn't bring it there. They followed Jesus on foot from Capernaum. Why do you care about that? Why do you care about that? Because I want us to grasp that you can mine the smallest detail of Scripture, and it is without fault. It's without fault. Sometimes we need good old fashioned reminders that what you hold in your hand is God's word. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible and utterly sufficient down to the smallest detail. We have an idea of the scene here, but we often visualize Jesus as being very quiet, don't we? This would take some serious vocals to preach to the crowd we have. Jesus is in the open air. And though the waves there on the Sea of Galilee are not huge, there is a constant tide and movement of water, just quite loud. We don't often picture Jesus in his role of open air preacher, do we? Even in the movie depictions of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you have thousands in this crowd. And what's Jesus doing? He's, he's just whispering to the person in front of him, right? no. Jesus was an open-air preacher, as were all the greats in the New Testament, all open-air preachers. It's a lost art form I used to enjoy often. It's a well-placed, a well-placed and skilled open-air preacher can reach as many people in one afternoon that a church reaches in a year. George Whitefield, John Wesley, the list goes on. They were all open-air preachers. If we press on in our text, we see some remarkable things here in verse 10. Mark 3, verse 10. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. I had to stop at the first part here, for he healed many. There's much we can glean from this. Number one, did he heal all? No. Could he have healed all? Of course, but he didn't. Physical healing is not a guarantee of coming into contact with the King of Kings not on this side of eternity he did heal many he did not heal all jesus healing was jesus healing many was not only out of compassion yes it was but like the apostles it was done to confirm and authenticate the message so where then is the priority what is jesus priority the healing or the message The message, he did not get out in a boat so he could heal them. He went out on a boat so they could hear him. We need to tuck this away because our nature, our fallenness does not want to prize the gift giver over the gift. And when we say healing, in a sense, I say this in a sense of what we desire, what this crowd desires. It's not a stretch to include anything in our life that brings relief or ease, whatever makes our life easier. We have a whole stripe in evangelicalism that sells a bag of goods to their congregations concerning health and concerning wealth. They claim that part of the atonement, part of why Jesus came and died was so that you might be healed, that you might be healthy. And guess what? That you might be wealthy as well. And let me tell you, that sells man. Did Jesus give you that new car? I'll take some Jesus. It's a foul heresy known as the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. And when you aren't healed, they tell you it's because you don't have enough faith. You're the problem. And these precious people shipwreck their faith by the thousands. Believing Christianity is a lie because they were promised health and wealth and happiness. And what they actually got was what scripture promises they would get in this world. You will have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, you catch that? What's the truth there? You will have trouble. You may not be healed. The situation may not abate, but look closely at the second part. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In response to the truth in the first part, as we read the second, are we left in grateful thankfulness to something or someone? Does this leave us loving the gift or the gift giver? You have overcome the world. We're loving the gift giver, aren't we? Praise the Lord. We are loving him. A right theology of suffering, a right theology of healing leaves our affection and our desire pointed correctly. You, you have overcome the world. We love the gift giver, not just the gift. Heal me, don't heal me but let you be my gift. What if Jesus had not healed? What if his only message had been in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. There may not have been tens of thousands, maybe a little more like 30 or 40 on a Sunday morning. This is not a message that sells. That is not what this crowd is after. We cast no stones here, though. How much of our prayer life and requests center around physical ailments versus spiritual? This is no, there's nothing at all wrong for praying for physical healing. Yes and amen, and again, do that. But what does our prayer life say we value most? I think the older we get, the more we may be tempted to let that ratio shift a bit. I know I do. Back to our text. Because of what exactly did they press in around him? Because of his message? Verse 10, no. Most would just assume pass on the whole repent for the kingdom of God as that hand business and just get some healing. As we've previously covered, they pressed in, but not for the words of life, not for living water. With the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Well, the word used here for afflictions, it's a heartbreaking usage. The word here is mastic's. The Jews would use this word to attach the judgment of God onto a physical ailment. And remember, in this time and within Judaism, any sickness or disease or disability was because you were under the judgment of God. Recall the prosperity gospel. That's what they teach as well. You have no faith. God is punishing you. That's why you're sick. That's a lie. That's a lie. This puts a whole new dynamic onto sickness, though, doesn't it? If today you come into a prayer meeting on Wednesday and you pray for an ulcer that you're having, we pray for you. In first century Judaism, they would all whisper about what sin you were in that God was punishing you. So when we see Mark use the word mastics here, affliction, it's so much more than physical healing. Jesus is stopping the judgment of others. He's removing the societal curse that was upon them. Many of these people would not even be permitted to worship at synagogue, depending on the illness. When you were healed, yes, your body was healed, but you got your life back. You got your friends back. You didn't hang your head in shame any longer. That needs a sermon all by itself. Mark wants us to see that the effect the effect for those that were healed was not just a restored body. It was so very much more. And it is fascinating when we see the word press here or pressing used in scripture, it actually became known as the press. It's far more intense than we may think. It relays the idea of a crushing, of a mob falling upon Jesus and put yourself in their shoes, You just went 80 miles. You have suffered a debilitating condition for your entire life, and everyone has told you, if you can touch this man, you'll be healed. Ever seen a mosh pit at a rock concert? Well, of course, no one here ever has, right? This is for the people watching online. But preaching from the boat was not just for vocal range. It was for self-protection. There is likely nothing some would stop at to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Nothing. The press would have been incredible, intense, fever pitch. That's what's being relayed here. The theme of crowds in Mark is a blessing. It's a blessing and an impediment everywhere it's mentioned. By today's standard, gathering a crowd is a symbol of success, isn't it? A 10,000-member church would be a success. Not here, not at all what Mark is portraying. One commentator writes that, quote, Mark's intention is to underscore the weakness of popularity, the empty, hollow worthlessness of being popular and how much damage and danger popularity produced in our Lord's ministry. End quote. As we'll see many times throughout Mark, Jesus does his best to try and fly under the radar as much as possible. There was one notable time where Jesus consistently did this and we'll see this demonstrated at the end of our text here. Verse 11 and 12, again, reading as one verse 11 and 12, reading as one. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him. They would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Well, I want us to first observe once again, Mark separates demonic possession from illness. We see that he goes out of his way to categorize these two. And we've seen this before and we'll see it again. Now, time today won't allow a deep, deep dive into the reasons Jesus does this. But let's examine some highlights. Jesus doing this with demons often confuses people. They ask the right question. Why wouldn't you want authentication from the demons themselves? What a great proof for people. The demons are crying, you're the son of God. What's wrong with that? Let everyone see them squirm. As a quick review, we talked about this before. There are a few reasons that Jesus does this. A few practical and a few spiritual. The first reason it was necessary for Jesus to silence. It was necessary for him to silence any messianic talk about himself. These titles carried with them overwhelming connotations of military deliverance. What did Israel envision for their Messiah? What did they think he would be? A military conquering hero, right? One who would free them from the tyranny of Roman occupation. So if even demons or people start sending that title and message around Israel, which it would like wildfire, it would very quickly attract the attention of the Romans. Not that they believed in the prophecy, but they knew that the people would and may revolt. Now, part of this, this is what in theology terms is known as the command to silence as well, comes from the issue of character witness. These are demons. These are demons. Imagine the confusion. These are demons saying that he's the son of God. They're affirming him. Are they in cahoots together somehow? And we know that this confusion happened. What did the Pharisees accuse Jesus of doing? Casting out Satan by Satan. Even though what the demons were saying was true, if it's all the same, we don't want to be associated with that. Well, it's not just solely the words here. It's also the motivation of the demonic. Are the demons trying to evangelize by proclaiming Jesus as Lord? Are they preaching? Are they trying to further the cross of Christ by proclaiming who he is? Of course not. They're liars, they're deceivers, they're manipulators. Meaning here that the words are correct, but the motive is sinister and evil. In fact, these were what were known as lying spirits. Lying spirits. So the fact that they're testifying that Jesus is Lord might actually lead people to believe the opposite. The demons desire to stir up strife for Jesus. To wreak havoc for his ministry. They wanted to sow confusion. It's like when someone is running for office. There are some endorsements they would rather not have. Right? Cause them more harm than good. No no publicity from the demonic is necessary or desired. Anytime the demonic speaks, even if the words are truth, the motivation is evil. Jesus warned them here. This word for warned. Last verse is the imperfect tense. It's used in the imperfect tense, meaning it was again and again and again, meaning there were many, many demons present. Again, showing us the size of this crowd. Everything, remember, as we said at the beginning of our message, is on divine timetable, including what the demonic are allowed to do and say. In Mark specifically, the way he writes is very cross-centric. It's very cross centric, meaning the crucifixion itself is the big reveal until the consummation of Jesus work on the cross. All speculations about him are seen as premature, premature. One commentator writes, quote, only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is until the confession of the centurion at the cross. Mark 4, 15, verse thirty nine. All utterances about Jesus, and especially those coming from members of the rebellion, are either premature or false, end quote. It was all consummated, all culminated at the cross. And this is where we are marching toward. This is where we're marching toward. Every glorious Sunday that the Lord permits us to meet, we take another step toward Calvary. Today, we witness tens of thousands Tens of thousands pressing into Christ for a healing they desired. We witnessed a wonderful tragedy taking place in the open air. How close can you get to Christ and miss him entirely? How easy is it to come for the wrong reasons or to love the gift over the gift giver? Let's realign our hearts this morning as we seek to behold him as he is as we treasure and value the message of the gospel over any benefit he may bring to our physical lives. To possess him, to possess Christ in all riches, it is all wealth. That is all wealth here and in eternity. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, you are our prize this morning. Lord, while we pray for healing, while we pray that suffering may abate, while we pray that situations may come to conclusions, Lord, our prize is you. Lord, teach us to value the gift giver over the gift this morning. Thank you for your ministry in this word. Thank you for faithful servants to record this for us that we might be realigned pray all this in Jesus name.